0: Welcome to Wonders of History, Season 1, Episode 12, The Alexander of the West. In the summer of 323 BC, a feverish Alexander the Great sputtered out his last bitter words in a Babylonian palace, surrounded by his top generals and closest friends, the very people who would both carry on and carve up his legacy. This marked the dawn of the Hellenistic Age. Gone was the old world that the Persian Empire had conquered. The Near East, divided between Alexander's successors, would never be the same. Now, when history teachers introduced this era to their students, they love to talk about all the cultural exchanges that both East and West underwent. You know, the West introduced the East to new styles of warfare the phalanx, heavy cavalry, the sarissa pike, while the East exported architecture, luxury goods, and even mysterious religions. When we learn about this period in high school, there is always this divide between East and West. And when they say the East, they're of course referring to the Near East Asia Minor, the Levant, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Iran. And when they talk about the West, they mean Greece and Macedonia. Here's the problem with that analysis, though. As we should all know very, very, very well by now, the West doesn't just stop with just Greece. So really, if you're going to talk about the Hellenistic era in a vacuum and claim that it only involved Greece and the Near East and any exchanges between those two regions, you're painting a tragically incomplete picture of just how far the splashes of Alexander's campaign rippled across the Mediterranean. I mean, hell, the events of today's episode, for example, probably wouldn't have happened if Alexander hadn't perished so inconveniently, kicking off the Hellenistic Age, let alone conquered the entire Persian Empire. See, if neither of those things had happened, then there would have been nobody to inspire Pyrrhus of Epirus to become the Alexander of the West. And if this guy, Pyrrhus, hadn't attempted to do what he's about to, then Carthage would not have been thrust for the first time into the conflict larger than anything they've had to deal with before. Today, we're going to find out why. So, before we get into just who Pyrrhus of Epirus was, it'll be helpful to pick up where we last left off and talk about the aftermath of the Sicilian Wars. In 307 to 306 BC, After Agathocles had abandoned his army in Libya and sued for peace, the treaty that divided Sicily between Carthage, Syracuse, and a handful of minor powers in the northeast took effect. Without an immediate existential threat to contend with, Carthage could shift over to the task of reorganizing their territory and repairing their war-torn infrastructure, both at home in Libya and abroad in Sicily. They started by, as we mentioned last time, resettling the diverse cast of Greek mercenaries that had so unwisely followed Agathocles to their defeat. And remember, this army includes troops from Cyrene and Athens under Ophelos's banner, it includes Greeks from southern Italy as well as citizens of Syracuse or other Sicilian cities. They're from all over, and yet all of them are so disillusioned with their former general that they're going to plant their roots in Punic soil amongst people of a Punic culture. Most of these guys would go on to be farmers or citizens inside Carthage proper, but that wasn't the only consequence of war Carthage was grappling with. They still had to pay their own troops, including any allies or mercenaries that had fought in Sicily. Usually, especially early on in the Republic, it was the Rob Mahanet, the general of each campaign that handled raising, maintaining, and then compensating the army they commanded. After Bomilcar's coup, though, which we covered in episode 10, the Adlerim was not going to risk any more upstart politicians using a position as Rob Mahanet to throw the whole system out of balance. They instead assigned the job of paying troops to the Mehashbeam. those are the bureaucrats that handled domestic Carthaginian affairs, who minted special coins to be given specifically to the veterans of the Sicilian Wars, which was a special effort to combat inflation. So, once again, we see an example of Carthage learning from its mistakes on the battlefield and consolidating power in the hands of the citizen elite. All the while, the Carthaginian populace, especially the farmers of the Libyan hinterlands, did their best to rebuild their verdant plantations and bustling settlements after the damage caused by two years of looting from Agathoclean invaders. Speaking of Agathocles, what is he up to now that dominating Carthage is out of the question? Well, in 304, he declares himself not just a citizen tyrant, but king of Syracuse, and attempts an invasion of southern Italy through the Strait of Messina. I'll spare you the details, but basically it ended up being another disaster. The Italian Greeks, by now very pissed off with this warmongering Syracusan, called upon Ptolemy, a former general in Alexander's army, who now oversaw a dynasty in Egypt that would last until the death of Cleopatra, for help. Ptolemy sent over enough ships to force Agathocles' hand, and that was the end of his military career. Agathocles died of natural causes in 289 BC, bitter and alone. But this relatively peaceful passing did not leave Greek Sicily all that stable. Think back to episode 9. You remember all those mercenaries and volunteers, not just from Sicily, but southern Italy, that he'd recruited in his rise to power? Well, the ones that had not gone to Libya with him remained in his employ for the remainder of his life, and when he died, suddenly, you know, just had dozens of mercenary companies that were out of work with no prospects. A lot of these guys weren't even considered citizens, so even after all their service to Syracuse and Agathocles, they couldn't even vote. That's not exactly a good recipe for peace. Well, one day, a group of these already disgruntled mercenaries got lucky enough to find some work in a skirmish fought between Syracuse and a minor city in Carthaginian territory. Carthage, not liking this one bit, intervened, and to avoid another crushing war, Syracuse had to back down. This outraged these mercenaries. I mean, just when they were finally starting to make a living after Agathocles' failed campaign, they get the carpet ripped out from them AGAIN. So, this mercenary company, composed of men from the Campania region of southern Italy, left Syracuse and planned on returning home. But in 288 BC, as they reached the northeastern edge of Sicily, they encountered the vital port city Messina, that we've brought up countless times in our discussion of the Sicilian Wars. Messina was relatively undermanned and undefended, so these guys, using their expertise in the arts of war, captured the city for themselves. Now, what happens next is pretty messed up, and it involves sexual assault, so just be warned. Diodorus Siculus sums it up like this, quote, When they reached the strait, they were welcomed by the people of Messina as friends and allies. But when they had been hospitably received into the homes of citizens, they slew their hosts in the night, married their wives, and took possession of the city. So yeah, you heard me right. These mercenaries, who had just been so graciously taken in by the people of Messina, turned on them, slaughtered the men, and enslaved the women. Really gruesome stuff here. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in that situation, forced to act as if everything was normal while your abuser is living in your house and sleeping in the same bed. These mercenaries, delighted with their good fortune, dubbed themselves the Mamertines after an Italian war god named Mamers, that many of them, being Campanian, already worshipped. For the next 30 years or so, these guys, the Mamertines, would rule Messina with an iron fist, but occupying Messina, and by extension the strait that connected Italy to Sicily, came with unforeseen consequences. Unknowingly, the Mamertines had thrown themselves in between the two greatest powers of the western Mediterranean, and in doing so, they became the catalyst for conflicts on a larger scale than they could ever even imagine. But, we'll get to all that in a couple episodes. It wasn't just the Mamertines taking advantage of the power vacuum Agathocles left in Sicily, however. A statesman named Hecatos violently overthrew rival factions in the Syracusan government and seized control of the city. Hecatos, not to be confused with another tyrant of the same name who we mentioned in another episode, found an opponent in Phintias, the tyrant of Akragas. These two duped it out until Hecatos won, and with the power he had earned, went straight into Carthaginian territory. And this was only for Carthage to promptly crush him at what's called the Battle of the River Taurias. In 280 BC, just a year before the Pyrrhic War started, incidentally, Achaetos was ousted by an up-and-coming statesman just like him. Carthage, seeing an opportunity to prevent, you know, future attacks by just dominating all the squabbling warlords, sent an army into eastern Sicily and saddled Syracuse with a blockade. Alarmed, the tyrants of the various eastern cities sent word to a powerful Greek conqueror promising fealty if only he were to make war on Carthage. Their savior was none other than Pyrrhus of Epirus, and this request for aid from the Sicilian Greeks was how he came to be involved in Carthaginian affairs in the first place. But we're getting a little too far ahead of ourselves. There's still some historical context we need to understand before we can just dive right into the Pyrrhic War. That's because Pyrrhus wasn't only up against Carthage, Before he had even touched foot on Punic soil, he was locked in vicious combat with the other rising power of the western Mediterranean, Rome. Now, Rome wasn't nearly as big and powerful as it was during the age of Julius Caesar, but it was getting up there. In the mid-300s, they became embroiled in the brutal Samnite Wars against the people of that very namesake. But the Romans were tenacious, and soon they had bested even the fiercest tribes of central Italy. Carthage actually sent an elaborate golden crown to the Roman Senate as a recognition of their recent victories in 351. The Carthaginians followed this up a few years later in 348 with a groundbreaking treaty in which they all but acknowledged that Rome was rapidly becoming a rival, to be treated with respect rather than intimidated. The old rules that banned Rome from the western Mediterranean stayed in, of course. Roman merchants were to stay out of Sardinia, and now Romans could sail past a certain point without Carthaginian permission. This time around, however, the merchants of both cities were given equal trading rights and citizen status within each other's lands. I know that sounds like a mundane fragment of history, you know, this 348 treaty between Carthage and Rome. And, on the surface, it is, but think about the implications of that for a second. Suddenly, the merchants had all these extra-legal barriers removed from their hustle. Wherever they went along the route, they knew they could rely on the state to protect them. These new provisions must have made the Punic merchant class a lot richer. Also included in the 348 Treaty was an agreement about how to handle southern Italy and Sicily, the lands of those pesky Greek colonists. Carthage was already making a killing off of all these cities with those incredible merchant fleets that we talked about in the last episode, so it wasn't really a net negative for them to share some political influence of southern Italy with Rome and let them have any spoils of war I in the region. Plus, now, if another Sicilian-Greek tyrant decided he wanted to start another war with Carthage, he would be facing a united Punic and Latin front from the north and south, And no surprise here, but it turns out that that's almost exactly what's about to happen, but on a much larger scale. But all this didn't kick off in the 300s. It took a while for Rome to be finished with the Samnites, and by the time they could really act on their new privileges as per the 348 treaty, it was already the 280s. Throughout this decade, the Romans made diplomatic power grabs and one-sided treaties with the myriad Greek city-states of southern Italy. That is, until they took things one step too far. In the year 282, some Roman ships sailed through waters claimed by the mighty Greek city of Tarentum, right on the heel of the Italian boot. Evidently, Rome had been threatening Tarentum in the years before, because this one seemingly accidental blunder was enough to incite an incensed faction of Tarentine citizens to purge their city of the Roman delegation, and even any politicians who were remotely pro-Roman. To the Romans, such a move wasn't just a diplomatic faux pas, it was a declaration of war. Now, if this had happened, say, 10 years before, a war between the Tarentines and the Romans would probably end up being a historical footnote, less than a footnote even. But no, Tensions had escalated right as a new regional power was surfacing back across the Adriatic Sea in mainland Greece. Tarentum, knowing they couldn't hope to win against Rome alone, requested aid from this power, and in doing so, opened up a Pandora's box of strife in Italy and Sicily. Finally, we get to circle back to Pyrrhus of Epirus. Let me introduce you to this oft-forgotten conqueror. Pyrrhus of Epirus was born into a region of Greece known as Epirus, right in between modern day Albania and northeastern Greece. See, when I say the Epirotes were Greek, I don't actually mean they lived in what we would consider mainland Greece. Rather, an area heavily influenced by Greek culture, but with their own unique twists. And that way you can kind of compare them to the Macedonians, you know, the people that birthed Alexander the Great. You see, Athens and Sparta always considered Alexander and his father Philip as these barbarians, not respected rivals, but lucky inferiors. And Athens, Sparta, and all those other central Greek city-states would have seen Pyrrhus heir to the throne of Epirus, which to them would have just seemed some backwater, as beneath even the Macedonians. So Pyrrhus, while he lived a life of incredible privilege and comfort compared to, you know, your average person was not in a great starting position if he wanted to end up more than just an entry in a list of obscure Greek rulers. Given how much the Alexandrian Wars of Succession turned his life upside down, it's honestly surprising Pyrrhus made it as far as he did. Listen to just some of these events he was born in the middle of. Pyrrhus' father was a distant cousin of Olympias, and if you don't know the story of Alexander the Great, That was his formidable mother, who fought to claim the throne after her son's early demise. Once again, I'm going to recommend checking out the Dan Carlin show, Glimpses of Olympias, if you want to get up to speed. So, when Pyrrhus is just a kid, his dad is out fighting all these battles for Olympias against the primary threat to her power, a former general of Alexander's named Cassander. Then, Cassander just so happened to win one of these battles and stole the throne of Epirus, forcing young Pyrrhus to spend his childhood in exile up north while his father joined the ever-raging war against Cassander full-time. He was raised by a queen of this allied northern tribe, during which time his father died in battle, by the way, until he was 13. An opportunity came for his father's friends to reclaim the throne, and so they hurried him back down to the capital, where he was subsequently exiled by a nobles, who didn't want to be ruled by some teenage puppet. But Pyrrhus didn't give up life in the political arena just because he was unpopular with his own people. Instead, he traveled south to command in the army of his brother-in-law, who was still maintaining resistance to Cassander. This was where Pyrrhus first showed signs of being more than a footnote. He survived the steep learning curve of both post-Alexandrian politics and ancient warfare, picking up the skills that will allow him to do so much damage later on in the Pyrrhic War. After a few years, however, Pyrrhus ends up getting captured by Ptolemy, the Alexandrian general who laid claim to Egypt and had allied himself with Cassander initially. But Pyrrhus's luck had not run out, despite how grim the circumstances seemed. Cassander died of an illness in 297 BC, leaving a power vacuum in most of Greece that Ptolemy sought to fill. So, he sent his young hostage Pyrrhus back to Epirus, in the hopes that he would win back his throne and retain close ties with Egypt ever after. Pyrrhus, now at the head of a Ptolemaic army, marches on the king of Epirus, you know, the one Cassander had installed all those years ago, and threatens him into sharing the throne and relinquishing absolute power. So now we have two kings of Epirus, supposedly working in tandem, but in reality, plotting to kill each other. Not exactly a recipe for political stability. We're touching on a common theme in this episode. And Pyrrhus is about to prove me right, because soon after returning to Epirus, he arranges for this rival king to be murdered and takes full control of the realm. From here, Pyrrhus starts to cause a lot of trouble for his neighbors. He invaded Thessaly and Macedonia in 289, and then in 288 he went south to relieve the Athenians from a siege, and then in 286 he went back into Macedonia, helping to conclude a brutal civil war in the former Alexandrian Empire. By this time, the victors, Antigonids, Seleucids, and Ptolemies had pieced together vast empires of their own, and they were wary of this remarkably resilient king of Epirus. They wanted Pyrrhus out of the way by any means necessary. Luckily for them, Pyrrhus had greater plans besides just expanding further into Greece. At 38 years old, he was in the prime of his life, but where most prestigious Greek conquerors already controlled great kingdoms at this point in their careers, Pyrrhus had only what he started with, having been pushed out of Macedonia and back into Epirus. After years of mustering a formidable army, opportunity struck when the Tarantines of southern Italy requested his assistance in fending off the rising power of Rome. So he set off on a campaign with ambitions as lofty as that of Alexander the Great. The plan was to wrest control of Italy from Rome and see what else he could pull off from there, maybe even head south into Sicily and beyond, which, given the subject of this season, should make you perk up a bit. This is where the Carthaginians will come into play. In 280 BC, Pyrrhus crossed the Adriatic, the sea which separates Italy from the Balkans, and after being jostled around a bit by a nasty storm, managed to gather his army, 25,000 strong, outside of Tarentum. Now, we should probably take a second here to note that Pyrrhus's campaign had near-universal support from the Hellenistic kingdoms, who showered him in troops and provisions. A good chunk of his units were Thessalonians, Macedonians, and even Rhodians. Most importantly, the son of his old friend Ptolemy, creatively named Ptolemy II, gave him 20 war elephants, which you'll remember from last episode, had grown popular in the wars between the eastern Hellenistic kingdoms. These elephants would be the first that both Rome and Carthage ever encountered on the field of battle. Moreover, it was the Pyrrhic War that gave the Carthaginians the idea to start importing their own from the east, and later to train African elephants for similar purposes. But anyway, Pyrrhus arrives in Tarentum soon after his rather disorganized landing and convinces the Tarentines to hand over control of their army, giving him an extra 10,000 men. In 279, after a few months of posturing and preparing, the Romans were ready to march on Tarentum, but Pyrrhus, instead of intercepting them, marched south to Heraclea. Now Heraclea wasn't exactly in Rome's borders but it was in what we would call their sphere of influence. Pyrrhus, knowing he was severely outnumbered, hoped to draw out a handful of Roman legions and defeat them piecemeal, so he took up a defensive position outside the settlement and waited for them to come to him. Compared to what Pyrrhus was bringing to the Italian theater, the Romans had a staggeringly large force of about 80,000 men ready to deploy. This let them send out armies to Tarentum, and Etruria, while still having enough troops left over to march an army of 45,000 down to Heraclea and eliminate Pyrrhus. But the Battle of Heraclea didn't go down as planned by either party involved. The Sarissa phalanx, which had proved so deadly against the Persian Empire a few decades before and pervaded the contemporary battlefields of the East, met its match against the Roman maniple system, in which several blocks of infantry proved much more maneuverable than a slow, moving mass of pikes. Long ago, the Romans had used a phalanx formation in battle, similarly to their Greek and Etruscan neighbors. The Samnite Wars of the 300s had changed all that, and the Romans had started dividing their legions up into groups of around 100 men apiece, called centuries. And this is where the maneuverability came in. A stalemate in battle persisted until Pyrrhus brought his elephants up to the front, who spooked the hell out of the Roman cavalry and sparked a chain reaction that shattered their entire formation. In the ensuing panic, the Thessalian cavalry made quick work of the separately fleeing Roman maniples, and the Battle of Heraclea became a somewhat costly victory for Pyrrhus. All told, Pyrrhus had inflicted around 10,000 casualties on the Romans, while losing 5,000 of his own men. Finally, the path to Rome was clear. Making sure to reinforce his army with Greeks from all over southern Italy, Pyrrhus marched north on the Eternal City itself. This in turn caused Carthage, who had been watching tentatively, well aware that Rome was the only buffer between them and a potentially devastating war with Pyrrhus, decided it was time to act. The Adarim authorized a Rob Mahanet named Mago, to sail into Roman waters with a fleet of 120 ships and offer assistance, but the Romans shooed them away in their typical stubborn fashion. Nevertheless, a concerned Mago met with Pyrrhus and grilled him on his intentions. Was he planning to stay in Italy no matter the cost, or would he turn south and head for Carthage at some point? Pyrrhus did not divulge his plans. When he arrived outside of Rome, though, his plans changed it was so well defended that he sent an envoy to the Senate before opening hostilities. Now perhaps another republic of similar size would have come to terms with Pyrrhus at this point, but Rome wasn't an ordinary republic. We're going to see this time and time again in future episodes, but there's this tendency for Roman politicians to never capitulate to an enemy. Rome saw more than its fair share of crises, and it was often the fortitude of its institutions by which it endured. But hold on, don't mistake this for me heaping inordinate praises on Roman virtue and culture like Western historians to this day are prone to do. There were still plenty of material factors and geopolitical conditions that contributed to all that Roman military dominance over the centuries. But we'd be remiss if we didn't at least mention this emphasis their culture placed on toughness and persistence. In situations when most comparable states would just throw in the towel, the Romans would refuse to do so, often to the point of folly. Now again, I'm not going to sit here like some quasi-fascist or Eurocentric historian and go on and on about Roman virtues. I just want to point out that there will be times in our episodes on the Punic Wars when this distinctness will shape the course of world history. But I'm getting off topic. How exactly does this Roman quote-unquote toughness come into play here. Well, the story goes, and I'm calling it a story because I'm having a hard time believing Plutarch on this one, that the Senate was ready to sue for peace with Pyrrhus until a single senator dissented. Appius Claudius Caicus, this distinguished Roman elder, is said to have admonished his younger colleagues with the following speech, quote, Up to this time, O Romans, I have regarded the misfortune to my eyes as an affliction, But it now distresses me that I am not deaf as well as blind, that I might not hear the shameful resolutions and decrees of years which bring low the glory of Rome. For what becomes of the words that ye are ever reiterating to all the world, namely, that if the great Alexander of Renown had come to Italy and had come into conflict with us, when we were young men and with our fathers, when they were in their prime, he would not now be celebrated as invincible, but would either have fled or perhaps have fallen there, and so left Rome more glorious still? Surely ye are proving that this was boasting an empty bluster, since ye are afraid of Chaonians and Molossians, who were ever the prey of the Macedonians and yet tremble before Pyrrhus, who has ever been a minister and servitor to at least one of Alexander's bodyguards, and now comes wandering over to Italy, not so much to help the Greeks who dwell here, as to escape his enemies at home, promising to win for us the supremacy here with that army which could not avail to preserve him a small portion of Macedonia. Do not suppose that ye will rid yourself of this fellow by making him your friend. Nay, ye will bring him against you others, and they will despise you as men whom anybody can easily subdue, if Pyrrhus goes away without having been punished for his insults, but actually rewarded for them, in having enabled Tarantines and Samnites to mock at Romans." Passionate stuff, huh? And notice how he's making some very sound observations about the whole political fallout of a potential peace deal with Pyrrhus. Plutarch may be putting words in Caicus's mouth here, but I have a feeling he wasn't the only senator who felt ambivalent about letting Pyrrhus win after only one battle. So the Roman Senate, after much debate, rebuffed Pyrrhus's offers, refused to release Italian-Greek prisoners of war, and demanded his immediate withdrawal from Italy altogether. They quickly mobilized all their forces from both north and south to trap Pyrrhus against the defenses of the city. According to some ancient historians, they also finally accepted a modicum of help from Carthage. It wasn't a full-blown alliance, but Carthage did provide a navy to Roman infantry force meant to patrol around the Strait of Messina, and keep Pyrrhus contained in Italy. Pyrrhus, knowing he would be trapped if he got dragged into a siege, abandoned his course for Rome, instead opting to draw the Romans to another Greek city in the south, as he had done at Heraclea. This time, he made for Asculum, an Italian-Greek city-state southeast of Rome, right in the middle of a heavily contested region known as Apulia. Once again, the Romans took the bait. And once again, Pyrrhus won the battle, but this was a victory in name only. Let me explain what I mean. See, the Battle of Asculum was really two separate battles that took place over the course of two days. In the first one, Pyrrhus found himself squeezed in between a forest and a river, and unable to deploy elephants or cavalry, which, let's face it, were really his only advantage over the Romans whatsoever. Thus, the first day was another stalemate between Manipal and Sarissa Phalanx, like there had been at Heraclea. But this situation perfectly suited the Roman Manipal. The units on the front lines could engage with the Greek Phalanx with maximum intensity, knowing they would get relief when their general ordered them to back off and another maniple to replace them. To combat this on the second day, Pyrrhus deployed his troops in the most rugged, intractable terrain possible. The idea was to embrace the flaws of his army rather than struggle against them. He knew his phalanx was going to be immobile no matter what, but this time, hopefully the Roman maniples would be too. And he was right. According to Plutarch, the second day of fighting was even worse than the first, an absolute meat grinder. The Romans, unable to switch out of maniples to keep fresh men on the front lines, grew just as exhausted as their opponents in the phalanx, until finally, Pyrrhus sent in the elephants for a crushing final blow. For the second time, he had beaten the Romans, and yet for the second time, he had worn himself down to the nub. In the aftermath of Asculum, Pyrrhus learned that he had lost nearly 4,000 men, leaving him with 36,000 left. Now it might not sound like much, but think about that for a second. What's going to happen when Pyrrhus comes to the next battle, thousands of men short? And the next? And the next? Every time it just gets easier and easier to eradicate his army. There's a reason why we know Alexander's name and not Pyrrhus's. It's because Alexander didn't suffer casualties like this. A distraught Pyrrhus is reported to have exclaimed, Another such victory over the Romans, and we are surely ruined. And for all those who have been wondering thus far, yes, the Battle of Asculum is where we get the term Pyrrhic victory, which Wikipedia defines as, quote, a victory which inflicts such a devastating toll on the victor that it is tantamount to defeat. Needless to say, this first Pyrrhic victory changed the course of Pyrrhus' whole campaign. The Romans may have been too difficult a foe, but what about the other great power of the West? What about Carthage? In 279 BC, sometime after the disaster at Asculum, envoys from a myriad of Sicilian Greek city-states journeyed to southern Italy, where Pyrrhus was licking his wounds. They came from Syracuse and Akragas and Leontini, and they promised to cede most of eastern Sicily over to Pyrrhus on one condition, that he eliminate the Carthaginians once and for all, and unite the island under Greek rule. Agathocles was long dead, and in the wake of the upheaval caused by stampedes of mercenaries like the Mamertines, Carthage was asserting more control over Sicily than the proud Greek cities would have liked. But Sicily wasn't the only place courting Pyrrhus' ambitions. The king of Macedonia had recently perished in a failed campaign against the Celtic peoples to the north of Greece, and Alexander's old realm was just asking to be conquered. And on top of all these options, the Tarentines were kind of nudging Pyrrhus like, Hey man, don't forget, you just promised us that you would defeat the Romans. You're not going anywhere. The allure of Sicily, and possibly even Libya, however, was too great for Pyrrhus to resist. So leaving an infuriated Tarentum to their fate against the unforgiving Romans, Pyrrhus set sail yet again in search of an easy victory. Rome couldn't do much about it, and frankly, they were probably happy to see the other side of Pyrrhus as he descended the Mediterranean down to their powerful neighbor. Carthage, on the other hand, sprung into action when they got wind of the Greek general's plan. Their fleets patrolling around the Strait of Messina just missed Pyrrhus, who sped over to nearby Messina proper, looking to shoot past the closing Punic jaws. The Mamertines, who remember were those mercenaries who had set up shop in Messina, well, they wanted to be left the hell alone, thank you very much, and they made an alliance with Carthage to chase Pyrrhus out of their turf. South of Messina, Pyrrhus had more luck in Toromenium, where the local tyrant supplied him with reinforcements and let him land farther south at the city of Catana. From there, he marched down to Syracuse, where, as you might recall, Carthage was currently blockading and besieging. The Carthaginians immediately pulled back when they heard that Pyrrhus was on his way. My guess is that they wanted to play it safe and thought their chances were better on the defensive. While the Carthaginian army and navy returned to the west, Pyrrhus entered the city unopposed and entreated with his newfound allies. So who exactly were these allies? Well, Hecatos was gone, having been exiled from Syracuse the year before, So, the city was divided by two petty tyrants who despised each other. Their names were Thoenon and Sosistratus. Pyrrhus trusted neither. Also in attendance were the men of Leontini and Akragas, of Gela and Camarina and Catana and Toramenium, all the city-states we went over during our episodes on the Sicilian Wars. Between them and his original force, Pyrrhus now had an army over 30,000 men strong. It was time to launch his offensive. Pyrrhus went hurtling westward, determined to smash through any Punic defenses on the border. Along the way, the size of his army only snowballed. Upon stopping at Kragos, who gave him 10,000 extra troops, the Greek citizens of a Punic settlement called Enna came to join him with promises of even more. As he kept marching, dozens of towns and cities, mostly under the influence of Sosistratus, flocked to his banner he ended up stepping into enemy territory with a little over 30,000 men behind him. Not since the years of Dionysus I had Sicily seen combat so ferocious and on such a large scale. In what Dexter Hoyos calls, quote, a blitzkrieg unparalleled in Carthage's two and a half centuries in western Sicily, end quote, Pyrrhus took city after city from the Carthaginians, Salinas, Azones, and some places we haven't even heard of yet, Heraclea and... Hellysiae, all submitted to his siege engines and assaults. None of those defeats were horrible losses for Carthage, but now on a roll, Pyrrhus had his eyes on a more worthy challenge. The infamous Mount Eryx, on the slopes of which sat Carthage's most formidable Sicilian fortress. The massive citadel that housed a settlement of its own, called Eryx, was on a site that had first been founded by the Elimians. Centuries later, and without having seen much bloodshed in the Sicilian Wars, Eryx and its defenses had plenty of time to solidify. This was Carthage's last resort in Sicily, and Pyrrhus was about to take it first. And while we're on the subject, do yourself a favor and google the modern-day landmark known as Monte Eris. The castle that's there isn't the original one the Carthaginians built, but the view is just the same. I swear, once we get this virus under control, I'm going to save up for some plane tickets to Sicily, because all these photos look spectacular. But enough about that, we have an epic siege to be getting on with. What exactly happened to Pyrrhus when he stormed Mount Eryx? Well, this is definitely one of the more cinematic parts of the story, so I'll let Plutarch paint you a picture. Here's how he describes the siege of Eryx. Quote, So when his army was ready, he put on his armor, went out to battle, and made a vow to Heracles that he would institute games and a sacrifice in his honor, if the god would render him, in the sight of the Sicilian Greeks, an antagonist worthy of his lineage and resources. Then he ordered the trumpets to sound, scattered the barbarians with his missiles, brought up his scaling ladders, and was the first to mount the wall. Many were the foes against whom he strove. Some of them he pushed from the wall on either side and hurled them to the ground, but most he laid dead in heaps about him with the strokes of his sword. He himself suffered no harm, but was a terrible sight for his enemies to look upon, and proved that Homer was right and fully justified in saying that valor, alone of all virtues, often displays transports due to divine possession and frenzy. After the capture of the city, he sacrificed to the god in the magnificent fashion and furnished spectacles of all sorts of contests. This was a sizable blow to Carthage's prospects. If Pyrrhus could manage to take a city such as Eryx, he could certainly take Panormis and Lilybaeum, right? Well, yes and no. With Eryx in Greek hands, Pyrrhus left a small garrison there and moved on to a settlement right next to Panormis that he could use as kind of a staging ground with which to capture the larger city. Panormus, remember that's modern-day Palermo, didn't make it as long as Erich's. They, too, were overcome by Pyrrhus' combined arms. Over the next several weeks, Pyrrhus consolidated his holdings and captured many smaller fortresses that had refused to surrender initially. It seems that Carthage had been busy with construction projects over the centuries. And that's a side we really don't see too much of in the original sources, the material and economic consequences of all these wars, although archaeology does help us touch on them somewhat. But that is a story for another time. Just as Pyrrhus overcame the last of these most recent hurdles, fate intervened to throw another arbitrary set in the way of his path to victory. They came in the form of the Mamertines. The Mamertines had been around for years now, their influence slowly spreading to settlements outside of Messina's immediate vicinity as they took on more and more disenfranchised mercenaries or down-on-their-luck drifters. Such advancements made them bold enough, or rather foolhardy enough, to challenge Pyrrhus directly. A delegation arrived in western Sicily, demanding of him tribute if he was going to make himself a permanent fixture on the island. Pyrrhus didn't even do them the honor of treating them as anything other than bandits, which, let's be honest, they kind of were. According to Diodorus, he rounded up any Mamertines in his territory and executed them before sending part of his army back east to subdue the growing threat. The Mamertines weren't completely annihilated, they still have an important role to play in the history of Carthage after all, but they were quelled back into defensive isolationism. No sooner had Pyrrhus circled back over to his Punic affairs from this little Mamertine distraction when Carthage too sent him a delegation. Instead of demanding war like the Mamertines had done, the Carthaginians offered peace, peace that came with quite a few incentives. For one, Carthage would give Pyrrhus a huge sum of money which would help him pay off any debts to his soldiers and not to mention, you know, develop his newly won empire. For another, they would establish diplomatic ties with him and even escort him back to where he came from if he would only leave western Sicily alone. Pyrrhus, the ambitious king that he was, yearned not only for Sicily, but for Libya. His incredible success against Carthage so far had only whetted his appetite for the prosperous hinterlands of Cape Bon that Agathocles had failed to win. Just as Alexander the Great had discovered the spoils of the East, Pyrrhus would do the same for the mysterious West. He came to Carthage with ludicrous terms, Remove themselves entirely from Sicily, and cede the entire island to him instead. They denied the demands, as he knew they would. And so Pyrrhus went on realizing his plans by force, rather than by negotiation. There's only one place left that Pyrrhus has to seize if he wants to secure his conquests and make a move on Libya. And that... Is Lilibium. In the intervening decades after our last mention of Lilibium, back when Dionysus I had invaded, the city had evolved from its humble origins as an empty town to resettle refugees from Motia. From what I can tell, it became the largest and most well trafficked Punic city on the island, more so than even old Panormus. It was also the closest port to Carthage itself. Carthage would surely put whatever resources they had into a fight and Pyrrhus knew that full well as he put it to siege. As grueling as it might be to take, Lilybaeum, was absolutely critical for the momentum of his campaign. Agathocles's venture, remember, had set out from Syracuse, which resulted in limited lines of supply for a sea-battered army. But like we already said, Lilybaeum was a straight shot to Carthage. Pyrrhus would start with a distinct advantage if he captured it. Carthage more than lived up to his grim expectations, though. They sent a full invasion force, backed by an entire fleet and dozens of siege weapons, to hold on to the city. Diodorus Siculus claims that the Lilybaians literally ran out of space on their battlements to position the ballistae and catapults Carthage had supplied them with. On top of all this, Carthage constructed an army of palisades, towers, and a trench thrown in for good measure to slow down the first wave of the incoming Greek assault. Pyrrhus countered with equal ferocity. He surrounded the city, dug in, and hammered the walls day and night with siege engines. We are told that he went so far as to tunnel beneath the fortifications of Lilybaeum to weaken them into collapse. This turned out to be a fruitless endeavor due to the rocky terrain of the coastal city, and it cost the Greeks two bloody months of stalemate. Resentment that had been brewing since Pyrrhus's arrival in Sicily boiled over. When the Sicilians first heard of the Epirotes' plan to conquer Libya, they hesitantly agreed, thinking that he already had better prospects than Agathocles, after all. But the dreadful siege of Lilybaeum reminded them of Carthage's true military capabilities. If this is what they could manage to send in the defense of one Sicilian city, what would another campaign in Punic soil look like? The leading men of Syracuse, Duenon, and Sosistratus, decided that they couldn't afford to find out, and both of them became even more alarmed when Pyrrhus ordered the construction of a fleet to begin while the Greeks maintained their position around Lili Bayum. If he couldn't take the city here and now, he would just have to sidestep it. Thoenon and Sosistratus and many other Sicilian tyrants were incredulous, and things took a turn for the worst when a fed-up Pyrrhus had Thoenon killed for supposedly forming a coalition against him. This was the tipping point for the Sicilians, who could suffer no higher dishonor than being bossed around. They revolted. A good few tyrants took their men back home, some even went so far as to ally with the Mamertines or Carthaginians, and just like that, Pyrrhus's ambitions disintegrated all at once. But Pyrrhus, remember, despite all of his misfortunes, always had a knack for survival, as the Sicilians closed in all around him, he packed up the remainder of his loyal troops and took off back to Italy. See, for the entirety of Pyrrhus's foray into the Punic world, Tarentum, the city that had gotten him into this whole mess, was still begging for aid. The war with Rome had not been kind to them in the years that he'd been gone. Tarentum needed Pyrrhus' numbers and his leadership, or else they would soon be forced to fold. Pyrrhus resolved to at least see something of value come from this sordid expedition, and he hurried over to the Strait of Messina. By now, though, he had inflicted so much harm on so many different factions that they couldn't just let him escape without proper punishment. A combined force of Carthaginians and Mamertines, which really goes to show the diplomatic brilliance of the Carthaginians, met him as he attempted to land on the ankle of the Italian boot. One of Carthage's great fleets, maybe even led by that Mago guy from before, trashed his transport vessels, and when he did land, he was ambushed by 10,000 Mamertines who had just crossed before him, lying in wait. This small army obviously stood no chance against Pyrrhus under normal circumstances, but with the element of surprise, they posed a serious threat the skillful Apeirut general managed to defeat these challengers, presumably with another one of his costly Pyrrhic victories. Plutarch embellishes the battle with a generous dose of Greek propaganda. In his account, he writes that the Mamertines, quote, were afraid to match forces with him, yet threw his whole army into confusion by setting upon him and assailing him in difficult regions. Two of his elephants fell, and a great number of his rearguard were slain. Accordingly, Riding up in person from the van, that's the vanguard, he sought to ward off the enemy and ran great risks in contending with men who were trained to fight and were inspired with high courage. And when he was wounded on the head with a sword and withdrew a little from the combatants, the enemy were all the more elated. One of them ran forth far in advance of the rest, a man who was huge in body and resplendent in armor and in a bold voice challenged Pyrrhus to come out if he were still alive. This angered Pyrrhus, and wheeling round in spite of his guards, he pushed his way through them, full of wrath, smeared with blood, and with a countenance terrible to look upon. And before the barbarian could strike, dealt him such a blow on his head with his sword that, with the might of his arm and the excellent temper of his steel, it cleaved its way down through, so that at one instant the parts of the sundered body fell to either side." This checked the barbarians from any further advance, for they were amazed and confounded at Pyrrhus and thought him some superior being. So he accomplished the rest of his march unmolested, and came to Tarentum, bringing 20,000 foot and 3,000 horse." Quote. Apparently unshaken by all of this, Pyrrhus went straight to war with the Romans upon reaching Tarentum. He gathered up whoever would still come with him, to march into central Italy, where the Romans were once again at war with the Samnite kingdoms. Pyrrhus had the misfortune of facing off against Roman consul Manius Curius Dentatus, who outsmarted him and his elephants near the city of Beneventum in 275 BC. Completely exhausted after six years of futile bloodshed, Pyrrhus left Italy, never again to cross the Adriatic. And this is where we leave this visionary yet ill-fated king we've been following around for most of today's episode. Piers went on to live a few more years, embroiled in the politics of Greece as ever, until he was unceremoniously killed in a street riot by rivals. But we really needn't worry about all that. Where this leaves Carthage is our primary concern. In the long run, the disruptions caused by Pyrrhus turned out to be both a blessing and a curse for the Carthaginians. With Thoenon and Sosistratus both out of the picture, a new Syracusan tyrant named Hiero took over the reins of state. But his goals centered less around antagonizing Punic Sicily and more towards curtailing the threat of the Mamertines, who still occupied this incredible strategic position at Messina. If anything, The fallout of the Pyrrhic War was a boon to Carthage, because Akragas now had full autonomy from Syracuse, and was open to further relations and trade with the Punic cities to its west. Carthage wasn't the only state that benefited from Pyrrhus' bid to win himself an empire, however. Across the Strait of Messina, the Romans, too, were snatching up new territories with no one to counter them, thanks to the mutually beneficial treaty they had signed with their Punic neighbors. The most recent war with the Samnites had given them dominance of central Italy, and in 272 BC, they finally annexed Tarentum, pushing further into southern Italy than they ever had before. Now there were only a handful of Greek settlements that acted as a buffer between them and the great power of the region. The Carthaginian and Roman alliance against Pyrrhus had given both the chance to grow and prosper, but what would happen when the growth of one proto-empire, directly interfered with the growth of the other. Pyrrhus couldn't help but notice how the borders between Carthage and Rome had become dangerously close, and as he set sail back to Epirus, he famously remarked, my friends, what a wrestling ground for Carthaginians and Romans we are leaving behind us. Unfortunately for everyone involved, history would soon prove him right. But, if you think I'm going to dive right into three of the most destructive conflicts of antiquity, you're getting way ahead of yourself, because there's still a lot of ground we have to cover before we can even talk about the Punic Wars. History isn't just war and conquest, after all. See, for the rest of its existence, Carthage will see unparalleled cultural and economic prosperity, and will really come into its own as this proto-empire we remember it as today. Before we get stuck into the Punic Wars, It will be worth taking some time to shift focus to these other aspects of civilization, to zoom in on what life was like for the average Carthaginian, to discover the material realities of a life in Carthage. Tune in for all this and more, next time on Wonders of History.